Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. We're visiting one of the few natural preserves left for wild processes. Here amongst the user space, creatures like the North American reduced process roam free. However, a species of belligerent protective fauna also inhabits this region. These extended BPFs are fiercely territorial. When they hear the call of an unfamiliar animal, they investigate and prepare to defend their space. Let's watch. Which means this week we chat with Liz Rice about learning eBPF and how it benefits networking, observability, and security. In the news segment, Azure and the Big Bang, 3CX and the Smooth Operator, a game of code, a game of prompts, and more. Protect some wildlife and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web app applications at securityweekly.com slash imperva. This is episode 235, recorded April 3rd, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Mike, good morning. Good to see you. I um, just want to let all the listeners know really quickly, um, this episode might run a little bit long, might be a little buggy. We're going to rewrite ASW in Rust, so hang in there, stay with us. I'm glad we've embraced the refactoring. Thank you, John. <laughs> While you're waiting for us to refactor, you can save $100 on your RSA Conference 2023 Full Conference Pass. RSA will take place April 24th through 27th in San Francisco and on demand. To register using our discount code, please visit securityweekly.com slash RSA2023 and use the code 53UCYBER. We hope to see you there. Also, besides SF, is the weekend before, so come early to, and attend both. Liz Rice is the Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent. She sits on the CNCF Governing Board and on the Board of Open UK. She was Chair of the CNCF's Technical Oversight Committee in 2019 to 2022 and Co-Chair of KubeCon and CloudNativeCon in 2018. She's the author of Container Security and Learning EPP. E-B-P-F. We'll see how many times we say that correctly this episode. She also has a wealth of software development, team, and product management experience from working on network protocols and distributed systems and in digital technology sectors such as VOD, music, and VoIP. She also makes music under the pseudonym Insider9, which I think is pretty awesome. Hello, Liz. Thank you for joining us. Hi. What a great introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, well, it's because we have a great guest, and you are here to walk me back from the ledge, over the ledge, about all things eBPF. I'm not sure which way, because it's it, it's a really cool technology, but it seems a little bit intimidating to write and to debug as well. So that's what scares me, appeals to me about it. But before we get to, to me, let's talk about you. What brought you into the eBPF world in this you know deep security space? Yeah, so I actually remember precisely when I first heard about eBPF because I saw Thomas Graff, who I now work with at Isovalent, but I saw him presenting the Cilium project at DockerCon. We were both speaking in the same track at DockerCon in 2017. 
And I remember him talking about Cilium and how it uses this eBPF technology. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this. But at the time, nobody really was using kernels that were that had that level of support. It was still pretty cutting edge stuff in the kernel. Um, but fast forward to that today, and basically pretty much everybody is running a new enough kernel in production that they can take advantage of eBPF. So that's why you're starting to hear about it kind of everywhere. <laughs> and, and that's cool. And you know, I think one of the things is that why we want to hear about it everywhere. I, I, I touched on a little bit, you know, you know, just three words, networking, observability, security. But I think that's perhaps not compelling enough to convince someone that they should be using eBPF. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the use cases? What are some of the reasons, security or not for that matter, someone would want to adopt this? Yeah, so what eBPF lets us do is to run custom programs in the kernel and we can load them dynamically which means we can change the behavior of the kernel dynamically and in custom ways that are specific to exactly what we want to do in our environment. And the really cool thing about being able to instrument the kernel or modify the kernel is it doesn't matter how many processes you're running, it doesn't matter how many containers you're running, whatever you're running on that machine, the kernel is involved and there's one kernel. So if you put eBPF programs into that kernel, it's going to be able to influence and potentially modify behavior across any process that's running. So from a security perspective, malicious processes are just as visible as, as legit processes. We can see everything that's going on. We don't have to change our applications in any way for them to be visible to eBPF tooling. Uh, so it's really very powerful. Indeed. And you touched on some of the security about you know, visibility already is, I think, under, legitimately under the umbrella of security, but also too, just being able to see what are those either containers, user space programs doing. It's a way to set up access control. So I think perhaps there's two paths we can take here. We'll, we'll go on a choose your own adventure of creating the eBPF in the first place, but also then applying it to programs or actually having to do something useful that is a, a security boundary, something to make sure that even that malware can't get on the system, or if it does, it's constrained to a degree. Uh, take your pick. Yeah. And well, even if we uh, think about networking, there's a security mm. angle there as well, because we can see packets at various points in the network stack, including at the point before they've potentially even hit the CPU. Uh, and we can inspect packets, we can modify them, and we can drop them. And there are lots of really useful like network policy use cases for being able to drop packets as well as being able to do cool things like redirect them. And that's, well, that's a good point because one of the things about being able to modify, inspect, deliver packets – that's a great uh, capability for a command and control server, for example. That's that would be a great use for malware. So, what are then you know the, uh, what are some ways that you know we look at? I guess deploying eBPF is where I'm coming down here. How can we make sure that we're using it in a way that we're have confidence in the security and it's not being abused against us for that matter? That someone is actually inserting themselves into the kernel and we don't know it. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing that's probably important to point out is that most people probably won't write their own eBPF programs. It, although I've just written a book that will teach you about <laughs> some basic eBPF programming, the reality is it really quite quickly gets into, um, you know, 
you're working with Linux data structures, you need to understand the consequences of that. And it, it, it is kernel programming, essentially. But there are lots of things that you can do without having too, you know, you don't need to get too in-depth kernel knowledge to be able to get a sense of what you can do with, with eBPF, which is kind of the approach I took in the book. But I think for most real-life cases, we're probably going to mostly use tools that other people have written, that people who have that kernel knowledge have created. Um, but some of the things that you might want to learn about are the tools that you can used to inspect what BPF programs are running. And what does that mean? I'm very much someone who wants to kind of try things out and feel the code. You know, I I don't want to just see boxes and diagrams. I want to actually see it working. So I've tried to give lots of, you know, this is why I kind of Mm -hmm. got into the level of programming eBPF that I can do, which is really just to understand what's happening and to really see how these pieces fit together. Um, but yeah, so there are tools that you can use to, like one in particular, I'm thinking of BPF tool that you can use to inspect what programs are running, what maps, maps are data structures that we use in, in eBPF that we can share between the kernel and user space. And we can use these tools to see what's been loaded into the kernel and, and get a sense of, you know, are these the programs that we expected? Do these look like they came from the tooling that we think we've installed on that machine? kind of thing is so, very important. I, I, I might regret bringing this up, but um, I'm going to. Um, so one of the things we've been talking about a lot in here the last year or two is actually supply chain, and I know you've talked about it too. You just mentioned a lot of the eBPF code that folks are going to be running is actually coming from third parties. Should people start thinking mm-hmm. about supply chain and eBPF? It's actually a really interesting point. So um, when... I mean, first of all, absolutely essential that you get your eBPF code from a trusted source because an eBPF program could be doing anything. You know, it is, it's like giving out root privileges because it's got access to basically the whole kernel. Yeah. There's some really nice um, safety features to make sure that eBPF programs don't do unexpected things. They have to go through a, a verifier as they're loaded into the kernel. And that ensures that it's safe to run in the sense that it's not going to crash the kernel and it's definitely going to run to completion. But of course, if your program was written by somebody malicious, they can do bad things. So you do want to be really careful where your eBPF programs are coming from. And to some extent, that can be um, controlled by the sort of supply chain security processes that we're seeing being used in user space. If I, if you download Cilium, you're going to download a container image that includes, I mean, actually, we end up compiling eBPF programs on the fly. Um, and, and that's quite a common thing to do. But um, there's also some work in sort of in flight in the kernel community, community to be able to sign the BPF programs themselves. And that's actually more difficult than it is in the case of a normal user space application because when you have a user space application, here it is, here's the binary. This is the, you know, you can run a hash over that, the contents of that package or that, that whatever it is, you can come up with a sign, a signature for that executable or, or that application and all the packages that are com- coming with it. With BPF, you'd think you might be able to do the same thing. You could take a program, load it into the kernel, have the kernel check the signature. But actually, there are some really 
interesting things that get done to adjust the program as it's loaded into the kernel to take account of the fact that if I build a program on my machine that's running a certain version of the kernel, data structures might have changed and you know might be different from the kernel that you're running. So if I send you that program, I mean, back in the day, you had to make sure your kernel versions matched because otherwise the data structures wouldn't. Now we have a thing called compile once run everywhere, which is a super neat approach to portability, but it means that the program that you actually end up running might have been adjusted compared to what I what I run on my machine. So the signature side of the, the eBPF program signing is a, a work in progress because it's a little bit more complicated than you might think. <laughs> that is wonderfully complicated. I think that also <laughs> brings us, let's, let's also bring that aspect in uh, of the book that you wrote and, and you touched a little bit that you need, you know, a, to, to write a eBPF program, you need to have some learn, Linux kernel knowledge um, what about programming language knowledge? You know, we, we, we also talk a lot about Rust and other languages. Uh, that's one of our favorites. But, you know, can I compile down JavaScript finally and run JavaScript in the Linux kernel? Or what am I stuck with here? Yeah. So um, I guess, first of all, we should just make sure everybody's completely on the same page that, mm. like, the kernel and user space. Because most of the time when we're, you know, if we're writing code, we're writing it to run in user space. But whenever our applications want to do something that involves any kind of hardware, whether that's accessing memory or files or sending or receiving networks, writing something to the screen, all of these things require assistance from the kernel, which is this kind of privileged part of the operating system that can do that. And the user space code makes system calls to the kernel to ask for this assistance. And then the kernel's also coordinating all our different processes that might be running simultaneously. Um, now, when we write an eBPF program, it's, it, it gets compiled into bytecode. So there's a set of eBPF instructions in bytecode, looks like machine code, um, that get compiled. Well, it, that's what ends up getting loaded into the kernel. And then the kernel actually compiles it to native machine code as well. To get to that bytecode, I mean, you could theoretically write that bytecode yourself by hand, but as a human being, not many of us choose to do yes. that. We mostly want uh, a higher level programming language. Um, so it has to be something that can be compiled into that bytecode. And at the moment, the only compilers that support that uh, are, well, the Clang and GCC C compilers and also the Rust compiler. You might think, well, okay, maybe they'll add it to, I don't know, the Go compiler. But in reality, the things like the garbage collection model aren't compatible with the way that eBPF sure. programs work. That's so you'd so end scary. up stripping out so many language features, you'd be back to C anyway. <laughs> So for the part that you're actually going to run in the kernel, you're pretty much going to write it in either C or Rust. Gotcha. For the user yeah. space part that manages it and coordinates with it, you've got a lot more options. There's, there's a, a variety of different languages that have BPF libraries and, and rel relatively straightforward support for uh, interoperating with 
uh, EBPF programs in the car. Music to the Perl and JavaScript programmers out there. But um, <laughs> Liz, I you're... don't think there's an SDK for either Perl or JavaScript. <laughs> oh, I can wish. It's April Fool's weekend, so uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> uh, but you mentioned too, like the, the verifier, for example. And when you'd mentioned that, the verifier is not about the, the C code or you know the, the Rust code that has been written. It's what's been transpiled, compiled down into this bytecode as well. So it sounds like, mm. too, that's, that's I, I think, a distinction to make so that we have better um, insight and confidence that uh, th- th- those properties you mentioned, this is, going to, this is going to run determination, we know what it's going to do, things like that, right? Yeah, and I think one of the kind of uh, penny-dropping moments when you're trying to deal with the eBPF verifier is that it is running all over the bytecode. So... Or when you see an error message, when the verifier rejects something, it's rejecting stuff at the bytecode level, not at the source code. So even if you've got um, essentially debug kind of bytecode, so you can see what line of source code it is, but you kind of need to understand why it's complaining at the bytecode level, because otherwise the messages are pretty cryptic sometimes. Yeah, printf debugging is not going to be helpful in that case, I'm going to guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't, I won't make you answer that. We, you, you can tell my 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 level of uh, experience here in programming anymore. Uh, I'll, I'll foreshadow a little bit to the news and say, hey, maybe you could do something with ChatGPT. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, we have to. I haven't tried this yet. I do need to see whether ChatGPT can make you know write some EBPF code. I'm sure it'll give it a whirl. <laughs> Well, so speaking still, still on this topic of writing the, the, the eBPF code for other developers to use it to whether it's applied in that, you know, something performance or we, we want the high performance out of it, but to apply in visibility mm-hmm. or security. What are some of the principles mm-hmm. then, you know, that the book covers that you would recommend for someone writing this eBPF so that others can use it? So it's, it's consumable and friendly to others you know, that do live in user space and want to take advantage of it. Yeah, so in the book, when I start my sort of earliest Hello World examples, use a framework called BCC, which is, um, I've used Python. I think it's very accessible. You don't have to think too hard about kind of how things are working and you can get the sense of here is some kernel code and here is some user space code that manipulates it. And BCC is really useful, particularly if you want to, do something pretty quickly and if you're familiar with Python. But because because of that portability aspect that we talked about before, Mm -hmm. so the way BCC handles portability is to say, actually, I'm not just going to send you some BPF bytecode. I'm going to send you the source code and I'm going to have you compile it yourself. You've got to have the whole tool chain there to convert the source code to the BPF program. we now have this compile once run everywhere um, approach, which is supported by um, a few different, it, it requires some user space support as well as compiler support. Um, but there's various different libraries that you can use to do that. So if, if you're going to go out tomorrow and write a production quality commercial or open source project but that you want thousands of people to use, you probably want to use one of those compile once run everywhere um, SDKs and languages to to enable other people to run it on their version of the kernel. BCC is a great reference, good open source example of just understanding how it's used, how it's built. What are some other open source tools that you would point people to to either uh, help with development, debugging, for example, or just examples of good 
eBPF-based tools that would be great to use within container space or the, you know, just general Linux system administration? Mm, I think for people who are getting their hands pretty dirty and actually playing with BPF programs, then BPF tool is a really great command line tool for seeing what's installed, inspecting the different programs and maps and, and all the other different aspects of, of what's in your kernel at the moment. So BPF tool is, is really quite powerful. Um, the BCC project comes with a whole load of um, uh, tracing tools. A lot of them were the things that Brendan Gregg was originally popularizing around observability and, and giving you that insight into how your system's performing. And there's a whole host of those, you know, pretty much any aspect of your system. There's a CLI tool that's part of BCC to, to do this. Most of those have now got their um, compile once run everywhere equivalents. So you can install those and, and there is a, a package that you can install so you don't have to worry about that, you know, where they came from. Here you go. Here's a family of um, really great tools that you can use. And then we start getting into the more kind of broad, um, I, I guess, more capable, more in-depth projects. So things like Cilium, which is a networking platform primarily for Kubernetes, but also for connecting to external workloads as well um, and doing things like network security alongside. Um, it, Projects like Falco or um, Tracy that um, comes from Aqua Security or the new Cilium Tetragon project, which all of them are looking at um, runtime security and using eBPF to compare behavior against security profiles. You know, is this behavior that we're seeing out of line? You know, does it potentially represent malicious activity? I think one of the really cool things that happening in Tetragon is you're not just sort of finding events and put, sending them to user space and then having user space say, oh, okay, that's a file open event. Do I think that file should be opened? With Tetragon, we can actually filter, do the filtering in kernel so you can have the policy understood within the kernel, a bit like network policy drops packets within the kernel, which I, I quite like that analogy that you can really affect the behavior inside the kernel rather than having to wait for some user space uh, filtering to take place. Yeah, and that's what seems really yeah. compelling about how you describe this is that not only compile, compile once, run anywhere, but you also have a central management, of, a central deployment spot too for the security visibility. You're not, you don't have to adjust every single container to, to, for this, right? Or you don't have to install this within every single container. So that then you can also see, as, as you mentioned, you know, why is a file open happening? Why is a file read ha happening for a system that's just doing some stateless data manipulation of, uh, you know, of adjacent blob. So, so that, that seems really compelling. That's like, ah, that's, we, we should both block it as well as know what's going on. Cause that seems like something hinky is there something not good. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think the future of, I, I think there's a, a large amount of sort of undeveloped security practices where um, we will have these profiles that are easy to understand that you can relate against applications and you can say things like, 
you know, should this application be sending network messages and if so, to whom? Or which files should it be opening? You know, and some some pretty easy default behaviors that you can think like how many of your processes should be accessing files in the et cetera directory? You know, those kind of policies that I think we will increasingly see being enforced at runtime because we'll have a lot of the runtime behavior tools that we've had or, or IDSs, I would say, the profile or the the way that you can express policy is really low level. You know, things like SE Linux, where it's really complicated to write an SE Linux profile. And, you know, I think in you know a few years' time, we'll all be writing security policies that kind of go alongside applications that just kind of say, well, that yeah, this this program should do this, that, and that's kind of that's kind of it. A bit like in the old days, you used to say, yeah, my my application needs port seven seven four or whatever it was you wanted to ask to be opened. I think you'll you'll ask for the kinds of runtime permissions that you want. That's my crystal ball for how security is going to work. <laughs> you touched on something interesting there. At least I think this. I think you hit this in your previous life too. I know I did it mine. When you're gathering that much data off these runtime processes, the data has to go somewhere. Um, are, uh, talk a little bit about like either the, the volume of data or what are people are people I mean it's really a fire hose that you're pointing at someone like here's you know all the debug data off like all these processes running in your in your cluster is is are people able to deal with that or are they getting value out of it? I, I don't mean this in a it, it sounds sort of negative way of describing it but like there's so much there how do you deal with it I guess is what I'm trying to suggest or ask yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right you can end up with you know, if you have a very undiscriminating set of, let's see all of the events, you yeah. end up with, first of all, the collection of those events being, you know, resource heavy and, and processor heavy. And also then you've got a ton of data and can you get that data out quickly enough? Can you look at it and can you make any sense of it? And I think that's where, again, eBPF-based tools can really help with both of those aspects. So, Partly just the speed of eBPF. One of the really cool things about it is you don't have to go, ah, here's an event, transition to user space, write it to a file or send it somewhere and then transition back. You can write it directly into this uh, structure called a map, which is done inside the kernel, no need to transition. And then asynchronously at some other point, user space can get hold of these events. So that's a pretty efficient mechanism. But also, you can do this in kernel filtering. So you don't necessarily send every single file open event. You'll say, you know, I'm only going to tell you about things that don't match uh, a policy, some kind of profile. And the other thing that is really cool that we've been doing in Tetragon is the relationship between not just this event happened, but... What was the executable that was running at the time? What was the process idea? What's the process hierarchy? What container is it running in? And in a cloud native environment, knowing what was the pod, what was the node, what was the namespace, all of these um, kind of forensic material. And you've got all this sort of timestamps so you can see, ah, this suspicious looking file open or this suspicious looking network connection can actually be traced back to this process that was started in this pod three days ago, you know, and, you know, figuring out how that compromised pod 
came to be compromised becomes a lot easier. And that's a good point that John brings up. What what are some you've you, you have a book, you've described a little bit of just the expectations of building EP an EPPF program, a filter, to do something positive for you know beneficial uh, mm-hmm. for security. For the end user now that wants to deploy that, adopt that, what are other things that users should think about, consider for deploying, you know, adopting mm-hmm. like configuration, volume of data? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually gonna start with a, a positive benefit and one of them is that you can load ebpf programs into your kernel without it having to affect or disrupt pre-existing processes like they will be you know a process that's already running if it's if you're looking at file open events you'll start seeing those file open events you don't need to restart your processes you don't need to restart your I mean, there's a really great scenario um, called, um, well, about mitigating packet of death vulnerabilities. So if you imagine you've got a vulnerable kernel that you can send it some particularly crafted network packet and it hits a vulnerability in the kernel and that would crash the machine and everybody would have a bad day. And if that involves a kernel patch, then, well, you've got to install the kernel patch and you're going to be rebooting the machine and you've got to figure out how to roll that out across however however big your um, deployment is. That'd With be great EVPS, for forensics too, can, real quick. Sorry? That'd be great for forensics as well also, but keep going. Yes, yes, yes. And you can just download or install an EVPF program with a mitigation to you know, find those particularly crafted packets and drop them. And your machines are protected from that vulnerability and you didn't have to restart anything, which I think is a a wonderful facet of the way that eBPF works. And the fact that you can change things very dynamically and change what you do or don't have running and eBPF dynamically, I think that's a, a a huge bonus. Uh, yeah, so indeed, yeah. very user friendly. P- part of that too, you, you mentioned too, like SE Linux, which is not the easiest thing to configure, especially if you want to say, you, you know, imagine uh, we mentioned supply chain. Let's throw in an S bomb here, that where an application says, "Here's my S bomb that includes the SE Linux configuration. These are all the syscalls I need to access." You know, it, how, how does this look like in eBPF world? Does this make things easier? How you know? How can I figure out how to narrow down that I just want this particular user space program to have these two syscalls, but to continue running and not crash at unexpected times? Mm. So actually, one of the um, uses that a lot of people will have already made of eBPF is setcomp, or rather BPF. Mm. Um, so setcomp has been implemented using that kind of um, BPF virtual machine. So some relatively straightforward rules, but that are used to uh, enforce those setcomp rules about what syscalls can, can run or, or can't. Um, EBPF allows us more flexibility, um, things like the ability to look at the parameters that are passed to, I mean, if you pass, let's say, a file name into a syscall, it's probably actually a pointer. And you, if you can't dereference that pointer, you, it may not be that useful. But with EBPF, we have a lot more ability to, to look at the the memory that that is pointing to. So that's a, a, a an evolution of what you were able to do with, with setcomp, even setcomp BPF. Um, there are 
lots of tools, um, lots of sort of security-based tools that have taken that syscall approach. But it's not a particularly, it's, it's, I mean, it's fine up to a point, but there is a, a, a top two time of check to time of use uh, gap between looking at the parameters as they're being passed into the syscall and then as the kernel starts processing that syscall, it's going to copy that into kernel memory and start building data structures to represent whatever it is that you're acting on. And there is a potential window between looking at what was passed in in user space and it actually being copied into kernel memory. And the kernel uh, documentation, if you if you look up uh, the sort of syscall interface, you, you'll find documentation in there that basically says this is not a security interface. Don't don't use this for security. <laughs> so um, instead, there is a um, a stable interface called the Linux Security Module API that's inside the kernel. Those attachment points are typically after the kernel's built its data structure. So, you know, here's, here's a file that I'm about to act on, and you know you're looking at the data structure that is genuinely what the kernel will look at. And you can attach eBPF programs into that interface as well, into that LSM interface. So it gives us the ability to build I mean, things like SE Linux use that interface, but they have this very kind of... Um, uh, <laughs> kind of cast in stone how you can write those profiles. Whereas if we can attach any custom eBPF program, it allows for a lot of flexibility in how we might write tooling in the future and how we might make it a bit more custom, a bit more bespoke, a bit more user-friendly, a lot more user-friendly. <laughs> and, and honestly, the, making something user-friendly sounds like a wonderful tenet to have for a security feature, for something for adoptability. And you had mentioned early on uh, that... Um, there's more adoptability now because kernel support now is more yeah. universal. It's much yeah. easier. So looking ahead too, you've seen and you've you've like you said like seeing the adoption now. Looking forward, another six months, perhaps another year, or just in some hand wave future, what's something you'd like to see, or what, what, where's the like more more of this positive direction you'd like to see eBPF going? Yeah, I would definitely like to see. Um and and this is really more on the the user space side, but the ability to craft profiles in a way that normal humans and normal developers and normal security people can Thank understand. Um, so I think that will be a big step forward. Um, I, we're also going to see, I think, just a huge range of tools that I haven't even thought of. You know, th there's so so many different parts of the kernel that can be instrumented and people can do exciting things with you know i think it will be there's going to be a, a a proliferation of ideas that are based on how we can improve the kernel enhance the kernel allow you to customize the kernel in particular so an example the kind of thing i'm thinking about in Cilium, we're using ebpf to bypass parts of the networking stack for performance reasons essentially mm. you know we we don't necessarily need to use all of it, so we can pass it, and particularly uh, bypass IP tables. And that can lead to some huge performance improvements. 
There must be other sort of similar parallels that you can draw in other areas of the way that a system operates that, um, you know, are potential areas that uh, EVPF could tackle in the future. Those are cool. We, we definitely don't want people to bypass your book or the, the work that you've, you've done in the past. So I'm curious to you, well, where, where, you've been quite involved in, in a lot of the conferences from the CNCF. What, where's something that you would love to draw people's attention to your book, of course, or some other yeah. presentations or conferences that, that you're even excited about over the next couple of months? Well, yeah, coming up just in the next couple of weeks, we are two weeks away now from KubeCon as we're recording this. Um, we're going to have the first ever Cilium Con, which is going to be a co-located event on Wonderful. Tuesday. So anybody who's in Amsterdam and interested in Cilium and EVPF, Cilium Con is the place to be. And, you know, we're, we're going to have people there who are involved in implementing EVPF in the kernel. So there's going to be a lot of really great expertise. We're going to have people talking about their use cases at scale and, and how they've been adopting EBPF and, and Cilium in particular. So really, really excited about CiliumCon. And then later in the week, the whole KubeCon, um, I've got a, a, a talk and, a, and a, a panel that I'm going to be taking part in. Um, and I will also be doing some book signings. So uh, yeah, Keep your eye out on uh, the iSurveillance stand for when we do those book signings. <laughs> Wonderful. No, that'd, be, that'd be a great way to see some more, more of your work and hear more of your thoughts. I do have one final thing that we'd love to get your thoughts on, but I think it's pretty easy. We always ask our guests to describe AppSec in three words. So uh, what three words would you give us, Liz? Yeah. So I don't know if it's a secret, but that, you know, you, you give your guests a heads up that this question is coming. And I could not get out of my head defense in depth. I, I can't be, I don't think it's very original, but I just think it's super important. Defense in depth. That was, I, I couldn't get past that. I, I think it's a well. Considering EBPF goes in depth into the kernel, we can understand why this is also on your mind. And I think you actually might be the first one to give us that response. So, oh, really? Um, okay. It, yeah, it's a good reminder. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for that. But more importantly, thank you for uh, giving us a look into EBPF verifiers, bytecode, and uh, no worries about the Perl and JavaScript lack of SDK. We'll we'll ask you about that the next time you're on. <laughs> Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you to John. Thank you to all of our listeners. We'll take a quick break and return with News of the Week. Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti, AppSec, with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. The Security Weekly News is live on Tuesdays and Fridays at 12 o'clock Eastern Time most every week. I try to scan and produce a quick look at some major stories to help you keep up with what's going on in and around the industry in a short format. Myself, Jason Wood, and other guest commentators provide greater insight every week. I'm Doug White, and I hope that you will look for the Security Weekly News in all of your favorite podcast catchers and subscribe for the latest content. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. 
We just talked with Liz Rice about eBPF and its bright future and bringing high-performance security and visibility into the Linux kernel. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella, and it's just about time for the news. But first, one announcement. Please join us at an upcoming official cybersecurity summit at a city near you. The series of one-day invitation-only executive-level conferences are designed to educate senior cyber professionals on the latest threat landscape. We're pleased to offer listeners $100 off admission when you use code SECWEEK23 to register. Visit securityweekly.com slash cybersecurity summit to learn more and register today. I've got another slightly off the wall uh, start off AP I don't know question uh, to start us off, John. And this comes from actually um, one of our news articles. This is what's the best soundtrack? <laughs> don't know if you have a good answer for this or a favorite answer. Um, off the top of my head, uh, how about the Matrix? The first Matrix. Mm, uh, you had the Prodigy, Rob Zombie, uh, one of my favorites. I think that's the first from Rob Dugan. Um, little, little newer, little more harder than what you usually say with your AD stuff. But um, yeah, how about that one? No, that's a good one. Uh, that, uh, for, for me, I wanted to say the uh, Bauhaus and the opening credits of The Hunger. Nice. Um, absolute great uh, opening, but it's not the full soundtrack. So I'm just going to go with uh, Kenny Loggins and Top Gun. So um, that, that's bringing in the 80s. But the reason I ask this is because some of our friendly researchers over at Wiz, they've been picking Azure apart again. Um, and this time going after Active Directory, which unfortunately I think is just... It's, this is the Azure flavor, but Active Directory is kind of the usual suspect within Microsoft world, sadly. But what they were able to do is uh, get some pretty amazing access that got them into influencing and changing, for example, Bing search results so they could show, they could modify what they thought were the, the best soundtracks. And of course, they threw up Hackers, which also has some great tracks in there. Um, but I, 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 there, there's some couple things I want to say. Talk about this sort of at, at the meta level, but I'm not sure if there's some input, there, there's some details in this in this hack that really spoke to you. Um, no, I think I'm saving my my editorial until after we cover the second one. Um, but <laughs> okay. you no, know, I, I think this this is interesting, right? I think probably where it came from to a degree. I mean, I'm not sure how long, I forget the history on this, but I'm guessing as, you know, Bing was sort of a, um, at least a second rate uh, search engine after Google for the last, what, decades. So now they're going to start getting more attention on with ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. I suspect more researchers are going to start poking around. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how, how that treats things, unfortunately. But tell us the story. No, I think we, so we've, you know, we've covered Wiz and Orca. Um, both have been picking apart Azure. They've touched on some AWS and GCP, but this also, I, I wonder how much we're seeing this in public, these uh, sins of implementation within Azure, because the, the the security companies are using it and using it for their marketing fairly um, to show off good research that they have. But I, to, in my mind, is also coming back to the idea of, you know, what were the early days of AWS like, or what are perhaps some things that we haven't learned as an industry because there wasn't as much sharing about vulnerabilities, about what's going on within these um, cloud service providers. So that was kind of what, what, what brought my... Um, uh, mind around too, as well as I mentioned Wiz. Let's go over to Orca too. And this one, XSS became 
useful. I love XSS as a uh, intellectual exercise. How can you find a vulnerability? How can you play with a payload? But I've often just seen it as like, ah, okay, it's a bug bounty, go fix it, but it's not an end of the world. Whereas in this case, uh, not an end of the world for, for Azure, but uh, their service fabric um, pulled apart by XSS. And it sounded like you, uh, don't hold back, John, wanted to talk about this. Um, so yeah, so we, we, we sort of sketched over that first one really quickly, but um, for our folks who look at the details be behind either of these, there's, you know, it's, it's cross-site scripting, which usually we sort of go, oh, that's used for like, you know, putting unicorns on screen or clickjacking or whatever else have you. I know clickjacking is a stretch, run with me. But both of these examples are able to access, manipulate Microsoft Azure internals, um, if not other Microsoft products. So they're, they're pretty serious. Um, they're both pretty long write-ups. I mean, as we've said many times, both these these companies are doing <laughs> really great stuff. But here's the comment I wanted to make, um, which is you know not holding back. We've we've got a lot of layoffs going on in the tech world, um, including at Microsoft. And some of the layoffs at Microsoft last week was on their security team. Um, folks know I'm my longtime listeners who of the show have seen me go from being rah rah Microsoft two billion a year to like what the hell's going on. It, You've got this type of stuff going on, and like from you know contacts I have of people are going like I can't believe that person was let go. Um, so I hope things change, um, and I'm saying that not so much purely just to sort of rant against Microsoft, but any management out there listening, you know, um, it's not just you know we are a cost center, we're not a profit center. Microsoft has actually turned security into a profit center, which makes it even weirder that they've let these people go. But um, and it's about five hundred is my understanding, but. Uh, just if you're a manager, think about where do you make cuts? How is that going to affect you longer term? You know, especially on application security. Do you want to be the target of an article like this from these companies in the future? You know, it's 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 just. Please be careful. I guess is my the, the TLDR on, on what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, and perhaps there's a topic perhaps more um, relevant for, for BSW, for business or enterprise mm -hmm. security weekly than here on ASW. But, you know, we haven't brought up those, some of the articles about Congress looking at maybe we should, you know, revisit what the security of these cloud service providers are doing and what they should be responsible for. Because they there's this the, the aspect of shared security, but it's more of a, a shared fate and it's more of pushing on AWS or Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft to be like, you are stewards a lot of this very foundational infrastructure. Pay attention to those cost centers. Now I'm yeah. hand-waving a little bit, but I think there's a there's an angle there for sure. Yeah. And it's it's and again, this is something we've covered many times. And it's interesting now because there's a little bit of this again, we haven't covered this in the show. There's a little bit going on in, in some parts of the world of the industries about um rehoming from particularly data from the cloud providers back to on-prem. But the general trends, no matter who you look at, is is cloud providers are getting more and more and more common for usage. So um, yeah, we've talked about cloud CVEs. We talked about a bunch of different aspects of here. So it's there's aspects of how this is going to play into to cloud security and how, um, excuse me, application security and how we're actually affecting and implementing. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep banging the drum and, and see if we can make a change. 
We will. And we will also change up our articles now, switch over because we got a bunch to cover. Um, I, I pulled in about the, the 3CX. Uh, so this is a supply chain attack. And you, you also mentioned supply chain in our good conversation with, with, with Liz. So this seems worthy to bring up. As a side comment, it's funny to me how we see like just the language of description, describing attacks. We, we've, we see a lot of zero days, but one click is more common now. And now more things are a supply chain attack rather than describing what was is perhaps the initial breach. This, of course, was um, uh, use some code signing, apparently compromised code signing certificates. So that these looked like a legitimate uh, SBOM, if you will, match of the contents of your application to what's executing. But as Sentinel-1, I think, was first to discover and call it smooth operator. So shout out to the Sade reference. Excellent song. Um, uh, you know, they, they they saw these were Trojan, and the article I wanted to pick up here was from uh, Patrick Wardle over at uh, Objective C, who does wonderful work on macOS reverse engineering. He also has a book. So, speaking of authors, um, go check out Liz's book, but also check out Patrick's, which is his current um, uh, draft is I think free on his website. You can you can check it out. But it's a great walkthrough if you're interested in just what do the internals of reverse engineering a macOS binary look like, and as well as he points out to some of the areas of what code signing looks like, what are, its, what are some tools to use. So it's it's very accessible, despite the fact that it's getting into a lot of the um, binary and deeply technical parts. So th- that's, that, that's, that, that was my uh, editor's choice for which of the 3CX articles I wanted to bring in. Yeah, I like that. And it's funny, I was actually going to let 3CX go, but I'm, I'm glad you brought it in. Um, and yeah, Patrick does amazing stuff uh, for folks who aren't familiar with him beside the book. Um, he's got a few open source projects out there for Mac. So he focuses on Mac security. Um, but he's got a few open source projects that sort of help improve the security of your Mac. Um, he's got Patreons and all those type of things too. So um, some great stuff there. And then, uh, you know, one comment uh, for the general with our, our media hats on, um, for the PR folks out there that are always sending us, um, you know, trying to get us to, to have their their guests or their, their clients on our show um, or their articles, Obviously, if you have some references in there to music or 80s music, there's a much better chance. So think about that when you're writing uh, uh, something for trying to get us to talk about on the show. Exactly why we talked about the OAuth dirty dancing too. So yeah, guilty as charged, John. Um, since, since you called that out, I'll throw it over to you to talk about some of the more, I think, hardware-related oh, articles no. that, that caught your eye. Let's see. Um, on the hardware side, there was two uh, fun ones. And... Um, yeah, let's talk about uh, first uh, AMD's Ryzen. Uh, so uh, the folks over at Igor's lab, I'm not sure if that's a single person or several um, Igor's, but um, they figured out that with uh, AMD's, uh, the Ryzen 7, uh, the X3, X3, X3D CPU, easy for me to say, while in the BIOS of these systems for um, an MS, MSI-based BIOS, they've grayed out the options so you can't overclock and, and over um, over voltage, which is, you know, good, keeps you safe. And you might be able to go faster, but at the same time, your CPU doesn't burn up. Uh, what folks have figured out is that uh, there is software which you can download from these providers or from MSI in particular, which runs in Windows. Um, and that result will, um, that doesn't have those things grayed out. So you can overclock, which, hey, that's cool. You know, worst case, your chip's going to crash and, and, you know, you try again or, you know, get more, um, get more cooling, whatever have you. But that second option about overvolting, uh, which is used sometimes for overclocking, sometimes for, for different things. Um, if you overclock by about two or three steps on this particular CPU, you kill the CPU. 
Um, and then so further researchers figured out, or after this blog post was put up that we linked to, um, other folks called in and said they're actually seeing the same issue with BIOSes and software from Gigabyte, ASRock, and Asus, or ASUS, depending on who you are. Um, so yeah, that that's I I think on the John scale I call that pretty bad. Uh, but what I'm what I'm wondering about there also is can this be weaponized? So is there something special going on in that software? And I, I didn't get a chance to look. Are they do they have some sort of assigned path into the BIOS to make these these configuration changes? Or can someone write malware which just goes and and I think they can um, spikes this, this particular CPU up to you know five volts instead of one point seven or something, and you'd suddenly have a, a lot of um, unhappy CPU customers. Oh, indeed. That's uh, definitely for, especially in the gaming gaming realm, that uh, would be some serious griefing yes. to, to cause someone else if you could do that. And um, PlayStation, speaking of griefing, has uh, not turned into griefing their own security researchers. They've embraced them, which is good to see with bug bounty programs. Xbox had, a, had launched one of their bug bounty programs too early on, so Microsoft was a good proponent of that. Um, and this one was uh, perhaps bringing some nostalgia back for you. You, you. Have you played with some just some hard? Was it hardware reverse engineering or just hard or just uh, gaming on the PlayStation? I haven't touched a um, a, a console. Um, it's got to be at least two or three years. I'm, I've got a vaguely addictive personality, and games for me are just like if I start playing games, you won't see me for weeks. So <laughs> I just don't touch them. Um, and also, I'm pretty busy usually. But yeah, no. So uh, and it's it's interesting. I've talked a few times this year about. Uh, um, uh, PlayStation vulnerabilities. And they just sort of keep popping up on my radar. I'm like, hey, that's cool. It's sort of fun to see people. People are still actively working on that. Um, as someone who, you know, I've, I've been in that game cracking space and, you know, my very, very long time ago, but it's sort of cool to see that people are still doing it and working on it. And I know that's getting harder and harder. But what was also interesting here is um, since Sony has their Hacker HackerOne uh, set up to, to do bug bounties, they're basically grabbing and and fixing and paying off the researcher, not paying off, but they're they're set, they're paying a bounty to researcher. But that means we're, we as general public aren't actually seeing what was a vulnerability, and they're doing this so that you know that people don't start um, trying to exploit these vulnerabilities and and, and cheat on games. But uh, as you were just mentioning there, Mike, yeah, I, I tend to be seeing a lot of the, the PlayStation ones. So I'm going to have to look a little bit wider and see what's going on in the Xbox world as well. Yeah, and those are fun topics. So, listeners as well, we've uh, you know we talked about a little bit of the reverse engineering from from Patrick's site, and there's reverse engineering with the PlayStation, and the article mentions they're expanding onto the iOS and Android as well. So, mm -hmm. um, we'll try to make sure we include those topics, but also let us know if there's particular tools that you have favorites, or there's certain areas you'd love to hear more of. Um, we'd love that kind of feedback. Another type of feedback is that uh, Twitter got some creative and clever feedback by uh, open sourcing uh, their their code, but specifically this is their recommendation algorithm code, so it's not the the uh, all of their code stack. And it was honestly, there's just so much going on at Twitter. It's just too easy, especially on April Fools, just to sigh and make fun of uh, of these. So. <laughs> Uh, what, what I wanted to po po point out here is that uh, the code is up on GitHub, and people have creatively, cleverly, and also some ab abusively opened pull requests and issues against the code, which um, can be entertaining, I have to admit up front, but is also just kind of an interesting manifestation if we talk about GitHub, for example, built features to be able to be collaborative, working with code, and users 
can be creative about these features. And this is why we also have, in addition to security teams, trust and safety teams. Because suddenly, an opening issue, an opening PR, becomes more than just talking about code. There are personal attacks, there could be abusive language in that, or there can just be someone now is, uh, Twitter, if there's anybody left that hasn't been fired yet, has to go through and figure out, are there, is there anything legitimate in here? Is there anything that actually would help this algorithm help the open source project, or is it just close, delete, close, delete, close, delete? And that's just what I want to highlight from GitHub's perspective. They wouldn't have expected this type of thing, perhaps, but they do have some ways to implement, protect users, especially on a smaller scale than, uh, th than Twitter, about these types of scenarios. <sighs> Um, uh, <laughs> so that's how I wanted to talk about it without talking about it. Um, how, how do you want well, to navigate well, no, no, that no, job? So, so what, you know, for, for folks who haven't, you know, we, we've usually read, the, well, we frequently read these articles. We're frequently sort of catching up as we're talking through them. I've, <laughs> I've read this one. I'm familiar with what's going on, but I just started clicking through some of the pull requests as we're talking here on the algorithm. <laughs> and uh, there's 200 open pull requests. And like, you know, there's a few are sort of basic funny haha. And I just clicked on one called Dare I Fixed It, 1413 for folks who are bored later. And... Um, I'm not going to click through and figure out exactly what he's doing, but in the this particular individual, he's got a URL that he wants someone to go to along with a header with an, a bearer token with the authorization token hard-coded in. So um, I'm I, obviously it's funny, ha-ha, um, but you know, and I imagine you're not going to go to trouble of separating out your your secrets when you're doing a funny, ha-ha pull request, but still it makes me cringe when I see that. Um <laughs> You know what I thought, the other thought in my head is you're sort of talking through, and you actually did hit upon it, Mike, is um, the work this this causes for folks um, yes. who are over there. And like, yeah. I think we've covered briefly in the past um, Google Summer, not some well, Summer Code, or there's like a hack muds and different sort of open source projects to get people, the intention is to get people to contribute more to open source. But from, I've seen from multiple um um, open source driven companies that suddenly in these months they start getting pull requests after pull requests that are really just noise because people aren't actually they're sending pull requests in but they're not either of quality or in an interest that the company cares about and you suddenly get you know um, a lot of work that someone has to go through so there's 200 in here what's the chance that you know five of them maybe 10 of them are actually valid and it looks like a few of them are people have put some effort in um so that's it's 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 gonna be a long day for someone over there who they were already busy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> best of luck, but yeah, yeah, I I yeah, new area, new era of transparency. But new um, era. yeah, where do we want to go next? Let's see. You are uh, just keeping an eye on a conference talking about a whole lot of. Uh, um, crypto stuff. You may want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So real world crypto 2023. So, and this is crypto as in cryptography for all of you old school and uh, rational minded people out there. <laughs> but uh, RWC, uh, really great topics. And even though it is real world crypto, um, you don't have to be a cryptography expert to appreciate many of the presentations, many of the panels. Um, and I can say that from personal experience because I'm no, by no means an expert in many of these fields. But some of the things that stood out to me are, are, one, just generally, the real world part means how do we apply cryptography? How do we actually build useful solutions, useful utilities for po different populations? And I just highlighted in um, this, the show notes a couple different, uh, about four or five items that stood out to me. One was the uh, updates on standardization. So you can see the video already available from it. That was a panel just talking about what, what has recently come into the, an HTTP or an HTML RFC, things like PAKE, 
which are ways of improving OAuth or ways of better handling passwords. Uh, so these are always good things we'd like to see. We'd like to see more WebAuthn. Uh, there was also a Crypto for the People presentation and video. This is about uh, is cryptography being built and used for you know small populations, small populations of users that aren't just major companies that need to have you know encryption at rest, encryption in transit to pass their PCI or their SOC two audits, things like that. Um, two others were uh, cellular radio, null ciphers, and Android. Uh, slides for this them, the, uh, alone were just a great walk through 2G, 3G, 4G, all the different Gs of uh, networks, some of which are marketing, some of which are actual technical distinctions. Uh, but it's a nice history of just what is present for encryption that was uh, custom homemade encryption by the companies versus AES, GCM, that is more of an open standard, as well as there are a few cases where encryption doesn't is present, which actually has some legit cases if you need our emergency network services or you don't have uh, you, you and you 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 need to be, make communications before you can actually distribute keys. And then the final thing for um, while I'm giving John a, a chance to read through <laughs> as well is uh, framing frames. So also bypassing Wi-Fi encryption. This was really neat, and the slides from it uh, once again really well presented. And it's one of the one of the aspects that stood out to me for this is some researchers found a way in the the latest spec for for Wi-Fi is that there was a little bit of ambiguity in how to handle buffered packets, and so because of that ambiguity, they could basically choose their own encryption keys and inject some packets into some traffic. And um, so it's really clever, really interesting. It's not necessarily, at least I don't know, I don't want to over, oversell it in terms of this is the end of the world for Wi-Fi. Please just continue to use your Wi-Fi and all of your TLS connections at the at the local coffee shop. But a, a handful of presentations that I think are really accessible, um, and at least interesting to me, which means I hope they're interesting to our audience as well. Um, so poke, poke, John, have I uh, lost you now or are you still around? No, no, I'm still around. Um, you, you are triggering me a little bit. I'm... Uh, um in my spare time right now, I'm studying for Amazon's uh, um, Solution Architecture Pro certificate. It's fairly complex cert, but one of the areas in there is um, configuring IPsec with AWS. Mm. And configuring IPsec is like one of the worst things on the planet as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like I've done enough of that like 15 years ago, and I'm like, oh God, this again. But yeah, so you mentioning a few things in there, I started like thinking about Diffie-Hellman and oh my God, we're back. Um, no, I think this. I, I haven't watched any of the talks here. There's one or two caught my eye. What actually, um, I'll talk about what really caught my eye in a second. But I think what I like about this is it's it's sort of obvious and hits you with a hammer from the name. But that real world aspect of it. A lot of stuff we talk yeah. about in crypto, crypto, cryptography is sort of a little bit more hand wavy and like okay, it you know again back to thinking about the management aspect. People start going, yeah, but can someone really? Compromise this. We've got a Wi-Fi one. I'll hit really quick in a second here. But um, pet peeve of mine, um, which caught my eye, um, RWC 2023. I'm seeing a lot of conferences, their websites, they're using their initials for whatever it is. Um, there was a professional uh, um, photographers, I think like what, wedding photographers, photographers conference down in Vegas that my friend was going to. And it just had the initials. And like, what does that mean? And like, you start looking around the website and like, RWS, what is this, right? And like, these guys, at least on, they've got a general information page. And the first thing on there is real world crypto. So thank you. But um, it, it it's something which frequently catches my eye, I guess, from the startup world of, um, you know, be clear in your messaging. Like if you're talking to someone like who's not in your little bubble, like 
what are you doing? Or you know, don't have to go into like a really crazy description, but say, hey, this is you know this is what this means, or have it in a fact or something, so we can figure out. Um, but let me keep babbling real quick since it's crypto related, and I don't have a tab for it, but I can talk to it. Uh, a flaw came out last week in or was report it was published last week in Wi-Fi. I know it hit Cisco devices. I know it did not hit Unify. I'm not sure about everyone in between. But so what's going on here briefly? Um, and this was something they found a while ago because the CBE has a 2022 date on it. Um, so it's at least been worked on in, in private for four or five months. But um, Really briefly, uh, part of the, the Wi-Fi, either five or six spec, says that a, a Wi-Fi client like your laptop or phone can send a signal back to the access point saying, hey, I'm going in low power mode, I'm going to sleep. Uh, it could be for 30 milliseconds or I think maybe a few seconds. But in the meantime, what's going to happen is the AP is going to start caching packets for you, right? And then once you wake back up, um, you'll download, you'll grab whatever those packets are. You'll, you'll tell the AP, hey, I'm alive. It sends you those packets and you catch up and you don't lose any data. Um, I know this is also used by like the ESP32s and stuff when they go into low power mode. Um, someone figured out that you can go and say, tell the, uh, um, the AP, the access point, that, hey, I'm going in low power mode. I'm going to sleep. You just cache my stuff for a few minutes. Or maybe you fake a MAC address and say that other guy's going to sleep. Or maybe the other one did go to sleep. And then you come along as an attacker and you contact AP and say, hey, I'm awake. But whereas before you might have had a WPA or a WP or some form of encryption between those two points, between the, um, the AP and the, the client, you send it in good old plain text without any encryption. And what happens is I'm referring to this personally as a, a deauth attack, right? Because it's sort of like the deauth attacks which happened mm -hmm. on Wi-Fi a few years ago. But what will happen is the AP, at least some of them out there, will um, negotiate down and say, oh, you're in plain text now, so let me just go ahead and send you those cash packets back in plain text. Um, so I'm tying this back to your story about real world. So real world is going to be sort of hard to actually be in a place to, to perform that attack. You have to be at the right place, near a device. Um, you have to be able to, um, so most AP systems, or most Wi-Fi systems now, have what's called um, uh, a client isolation. So it becomes more difficult to do this type of attack. But you have to be able to jump around a few different things, but the end result is you would have been able to grab some of those cache packets which were being cached while the client was asleep. Um, but just something different that's out there. Cisco's fixed already. I'm not sure about other folks. But um, yeah, that one sort of caught my eye and thought I'd sort of bring in here and talk about it briefly. It is cool. And you, I, both of us got sidetracked this week too by some other fun articles. Yes. Um, just, I think just after we recorded last week, the GitHub had a fun release that caught your attention. Yes. So um, GitHub has come out with what's called a secure code game. Um, I've complained to their, main, to their marketing team. It's like, why didn't you tell me about this like two hours earlier so I could have talked about this last week? But we're talking about it this week. Um, so what this is here, if I can find the link to it and pull it up, they have a a GitHub repo, um, github.com slash skill slash secure code game. And there's five levels to it. And it's, so it's this actually, the, the intention here is to, to allow people to try and find where the vulnerabilities are in, in, in source code and then how would you go about fixing them, right? But what's neat about this in this case, beside the fact that we tend to, or at least I'll, I'll speak royal we here, I think Mike as well, but I like to um, find these type of games where I can engage the developers. How, how can I either, you know, budding out of college or like someone professional who's looking for like how do they improve their game. So if I remember right, the languages in here are used, there's both, I think, um, I know there's Python. I think one of them is done in Go, if I remember right. Sorry, I looked at this week ago, which is a year for me. Um, but what was really interesting about this, not just different languages, different levels and, and skill sets, since this is on GitHub now with GitHub code spaces, 
you can actually run an experiment and play with this without having to download or do anything on your local machine um, at GitHub's free level. So I thought that was really neat that you'll get a chance here both to play with this code and experiment with it. And they've actually got instructions on their readme of like how to actually spin this up in code spaces. And so you can both get a chance to play with code spaces for free and actually see what it's like to develop in an IDE, which is basically VS Code, VS code but in the cloud through a browser. So you get to see what that's like. You get to play with these, experiment with these um, um, vulnerabilities and figure out how to fix them. And um, I thought that was really neat that they had that out there. So I'm hoping that this is the beginning of it again, and they're going to expand out and have maybe 10, 15, 20 levels with different, you know, have some WASM in there, some TypeScript, or some different languages. But um, I th think it's a really neat start to how it's going so far. Or really neat, how about I simplify that? It's a really neat start. Just looking, there's still, there's um, commits to in the last five hours, they're still growing it, and hopefully it'll keep getting better. It will. And level two, they reference the matrix. So it also has some fun uh, thematic uh, styling too. But yes, as you point out, it's a great way to have hands-on interactive and education rather than just lecturing about the OWASP top 10 that everybody falls asleep to. Uh, another thing though that I thought that was pretty fun was a game that was uh, about attacking and defending GPT style prompts. And uh, so there are 19 levels of attack and about six levels of defense, but they're really just you know some creative thinking playing around with ChatGPT. And the gist of it is that the ChatGPT has a secret key and you're supposed to get it to reveal the key, even though it's been given instructions to forget the key, not to, not to divulge the key, respond with uh, very specific phrases if you try to ask for it. And there are fun ways to, to get around them. So I, I thought it was re really clever, really fun. There's a couple shortcuts that, that I discovered, but I've not figured out the single... Unicode that was uh, one of the major impressive bypasses for many of these. I didn't get a chance to play with this one yet. I really want to. Um, so in the behind the scenes, uh, we're both playing a lot with these GPT things. Um, maybe it'll come to light someday. We've, we've uh, <laughs> I was, I, I, I wasn't participating, but I was watching uh, Mike and some of the other staff um, at uh, Security Weekly play with both either um, host descriptions, show descriptions. I think I saw some wraps for Application Security <laughs> Weekly and all sorts of other stuff coming out last week. And I, I was playing with a, um, I was getting ChatGPT to create an ad for if someone was searching for how to write some code in Python. So in other words, could you get ChatGPT to create its own ads? And then how do you how do you monetize this is where I was sort of thinking about. Um, we're playing with this stuff a lot. Uh, it, it's, it's entertaining us. Um, hopefully there's some good stuff to come out of it. I think this is probably one of the better things, right? How, the, the prompt defense is an area really of huge weakness. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I'm looking forward to playing with this, and hopefully a lot of our listeners are too. So please do. And uh, yeah, come by. If you, if you want some hints, come by to our Discord. I'd be happy to share a couple couple fun tricks that I discovered for, for this as well. Um, with that, there the one other GPT, I think, related item. Uh, John, why don't you take us out with that? Yes. One of the tools. So this is fun. Um, I We're always looking for tools and things to play with. And it's better yet when it's someone um, we know that is contributing or writing them. So there's a thing which came out. And again, I saw this just last week, um, probably after the show. K8SGPT, um, and that's K8SGPT.ai for those listening along at home. Uh, and what they're doing, this is at least partially written by some of the folks over at CNCF and the Kubernetes spaces communities. Um, but what they're doing is they're taking the power of GPT and the ugliness of Kubernetes, Kubernetes errors and misconfigurations, and they're tying those two to quote unquote, give Kubernetes SRE superpowers to everyone. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. 
So they released the code in last week, the initial version of it. I'm not sure if they're going towards the direction of doing a startup with this or what. I see they could, but we'll see what they do with it. Um, but they've got a GitHub out there, plus some um, on that link I just mentioned, there's uh, some uh, um, uh, little screen capture videos of it in, in action. But basically, you know, it, it uh, you tell chat K8SGPT, Kate's GPT, um, hey, I've got this problem in my cluster, and it goes and it has to authenticate to your cluster. It gets the error messages, sends them up to GPT, gets a, um, a suggestion on how to fix it and sends it back to you on a, on a prompt. So if you're not, you know, fairly expert level, because some of these errors can be super confusing still for how many years into it. So I think that's sort of a neat thing to play with. And um, hopefully that'll help some of our users out that are trying to get into the more of that cloudy type stuff. Indeed. Wonderful, w wonderful tool, wonderful fun. Um, we're, we'll look for more of that. And uh, listeners, when you if you come across interesting or useful or very entertaining <laughs> applications of GPT, let us know um, because we're still trying to find this some, some, some ways to talk about it from a security angle. But thank you, John. Thank you, listeners. Please do subscribe, hit that like button, check out the show notes. And speaking of calls of the wild, check out Wild Ones by FM84 and Ollie Ride. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly. 